Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Well, hey, it shows you what the hell organized I am during the day. We're not used to being on during the day. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And uh, one, and as we wait for our guests to come into the chat room, hang on. I didn't even turn my lawn. Look at that. Look at that. Everything's happening so quickly now. There we go. Now you can see me. Now I'm not so gray looking. Anyway, welcome. Uh, we're doing a rare day show today. It's one o'clock in the afternoon here in Cal- sunny California. Again, I'm Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at www.californiahaunts.org. If you're interested in more details about the California Haunts Radio Show, you can find that at californiahauntsradio.com. We have all our archives there, and uh, you can check out all our shows for the past year and a half. And you can also check out some of our blog talk shows because we spent the first 15 or 16 years uh, doing radio shows via blog talk podcast. Uh, what are you going to be doing this weekend? I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be at the Mystical Minds Convention, and I'm going to be speaking on Sunday evening about ghost hunting and equipment and stuff like that. But I'm not the only cool speaker. It's going to be a two-day event. Nazir Muhammad Chohan is going to be there. Lorianne Fenton, Brad Olson, Michael Fury, Drake Fury, Tiffany Turner, Robin Korak, Beth Silliman, and Shannon Del Florentino are also going to be there. And again, this is not about just paranormal. It's about mystical stuff as well. So you're going to have some Wiccan stuff going on in, in different other events. Plus, they're going to have a roundtable of speakers that you can ask questions to. So that's going to be kind of cool as well. So anyway, uh, you can go visit mysticalmindsconvention.com and get more details about this thing. And it's going to be in San Jose, California. So that was going to be Saturday and Sunday. All right? Okay. So we're done with that. Business done. Um, our guest today, I hope he comes in. I just resent the link to him. Um, our guest today is a paleontologist who's done a lot of TV shows and... Um, it's it's interesting and that I heard him again I heard him on another show because I'm good for that sort of thing and he uh was talking about the origins of life starting with the beginnings of earth all the way through the dinosaurs and into and, and into uh Neanderthal man and and all that and it was a very interesting chat and that's why I wanted to get him on the show today uh I'm really excited about it because I've never had a chance to really talk to somebody about you know dinosaurs and the or origin of life and stuff like that so i'm looking forward to it if you're interested in anything that california haunts has to offer we are non we are a non-profit group based out of sacramento however we're 35 strong up and down the state of california washington nevada and parts of hawaii we also do work and again we're non-profit so we don't charge for our services at all um so uh yeah and we've done around <clears throat> two or three hundred cases since starting uh, almost 20 years ago as a paranormal team, so we have a lot of experience. We work with both psychics, you know, we work with both mediums and skeptics. And I see Harry's coming in, so here we go. Henry's coming in for us. Anyway, Henry G is a very, very 
noted paleontologist, and I'm eager to talk to him. I think like everybody else, when you're a kid, I was reading this thing on Facebook the other day where when your kids are four and five years old, they know more about dinosaurs than you'll than, than you'll ever know in your lifetime. <laughs> you know? And then once we get older, we lose that. And I remember my poor mom and dad, um, I was so into it that like when we went to Disneyland, you know, and they had that, that train thing that goes through the um, primeval world. And I remember pointing everything out to my mother and my dad who'd sit on the train. I'd go, oh, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a triceratops. That's a, you know, that's this, that's that, that's that. And my dad would, would sit there very patiently, but I could see that he was rolling his eyes off to the side because here I was, you know, all the, all the people that were on the train, they wanted to hear the guy talk about, you know, the, 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 voice, come, the voice of God coming over the speaker talking about the primeval world in the Grand Canyon, and there I was flapping my gums about brontosauruses and all this other stuff. So um, that's just how it is. And that, that's so true, that, thing I, that, that, that uh, meme I read on Facebook about kids know 10 times more about the primeval world than adults ever will because they really, you know, at one point in their young life, they get into dinosaurs and all that. So they get real excited about it. Anyway, I'm going to shut my mouth now, and I'm going to bring Henry on in, and let me go ahead and move some stuff around here. You know how I am about my buttons, and uh, I see all my buttons already, and I'm going, to, I'm going to bring Henry in to talk, because I'm really excited to talk to him about this stuff. Hi there. Hello. Hi there. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Greetings from the United Kingdom. You are my first paleontologist interview. Wow. Well, we're we're just more or less like ordinary people. There, we're all over the place. You you know, there there are quite a few among us. You might not necessarily know this. Not all <laughs> of us are, are taxi drivers. Um, uh, uh, anyway, I, actually, I'm a recovering paleontologist. Ah. Um, How does one decide to become a paleontologist? I know, like I said, as a kid. I was crazy about this stuff. In fact, my brother and my his girlfriend were taking anthropology in college at the time I was a kid, so it was even more exciting for me because they would come home and they and they would tell me all these you know all these stories about different stuff you know. And I know uh, one became an anthropologist and one became an archaeologist, so I was really excited about it. Um, well, they do try to put you off. I mean, most kids before uh, know the names of at least ten dinosaurs before they're potty trained uh, and um, some of us uh, never grow up the um, dinosaurs bit not the potty training uh, and um, they, they do try to discourage you to be a paleontologist um, uh, but um, uh, I, I decided much against most advice to become a paleontologist uh, and um, uh, work on stuff but um, uh, you, uh, we're all just big kids, really. We we never never really grow up. Uh, I mean, I went to college. I always wanted to do paleontology, but I went to be co to college, and I I read you know biochemistry and genetics majors, and um, uh, to be kind of grown up. But nah, you know, it was never going to last. I could never really be a grown up. Um, so I, I went to be a, a paleontologist, but then I got distracted. <laughs> uh, after my, uh, well, during my PhD, I was more interested in writing uh, and uh, journalism uh, and uh, finding out what everyone else was doing. So um, I joined the Science Journal Nature just out of graduate school um, and uh, on a three-month contract. 
uh, that was in 1987 and I've been there ever since. Fascinating. You know what strikes me as funny is that as a kid, like you say, we learned about what five to ten dinosaurs and we're all excited about it. And now as I'm old, now that I'm in my fifties, God, I said it. Oh my God. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> hey, 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 look, it's just between us, okay? I mean I'm <laughs> I'm 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 nearly sixty. I mean, where did it what happened? You know, yeah. I'm in in my head I'm twenty six and yeah. you know, I just just wonder why my teeth are falling out and bits of me are dropping off in the street and I thought you know, this is not right. I'm only a young thing, but uh. it's like a blink of an eye, isn't it? It's well, yeah. I mean, what happened? These, these, these tiny people who be, were clustering around your feet are now grown ups and telling you what to do. Stop dribbling, Dad. Yeah, that sort of thing. Like with me, I want to go out. I want to look for dinosaurs. I want to go out hiking. I want to hmm. do all this stuff. My mind says yes, and my body says, oh, don't you dare. Yeah, yeah, my body says, no, you've got that dodgy knee, and you run out of puff after six miles, yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Now, what I was, uh, I was thinking was that, you know, like you said in the beginning, when we're children, we learn like five to ten dinosaur names. But what's humorous about this is the dinosaurs that I learned about back then, there's all kinds of new ones. That oh, have uh, oh yeah, so but, um, mind, you know because you know I'm looking at the big pterodactyl birds like like I say going to the Disneyland ride, and now there's these other birds that are called something else. And it's it's confusing for, for for all folks like us. It's conf for like me. It's confusing, you know because well, we're, they're, they're still the good oldies. They're still the oldies out there. They're the oldies are the best. You know the T Rexes and the Stegosauruses and the Triceratops. Uh, I remember when uh, uh, my wife was about to have offspring too. An offspring one who was two and a half was convinced that mum was going to have a triceratops so we thought it might be painful on the horns they came out why isn't my sister a triceratops um no but there are all kinds of new ones because uh lately people uh, all the all the famous dinosaurs that people heard about when people our age were kids were mostly found you know a hundred years ago in north america right. by two uh you know a yaley and a harvardy called uh, Marsh and Cope, and they sent their gangs into the Wild West to dig up dinosaurs, and there was an immense rivalry. But uh, most, um, so most of the famous dinosaurs, T. Rex and Stegosaurus and things, were found in North America a long time ago. But now, a lot of places are opening up, uh, China especially, um, and also places like Madagascar and Argentina, even Antarctica. Um, uh, dinosaurs are being found in all kinds of interesting places. China, over the past 20 or 30 years, has been the biggie uh, because um, a lot of Chinese paleontologists became educated in, in the States and in uh, Canada and in Europe and then went back to China to show the people in China how research should be done and that they should publish in English in Western journals. And now uh, Chinese paleontology is probably the best in the world. And of course, it doesn't hurt that they've got fantastic dinosaur bearing rocks right. that are full of uh, full of the most amazing uh, uh, fossils and not just dinosaurs. I mean, they've got fossils from all, all right up through the history of the earth. Um, you know, it's a big place, China, and it's full of people farming and digging up things by accident and bringing them to uh, the local town. And um, it's uh, just in the past 20 years, it's really opened up. Um, and uh, 
they're, they're really good. They're really professional. They're really friendly. I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are Chinese paleontologists. Um, and uh, so that's where it's at. But there are other places that are opening up now. You know, there are new deposits in the middle of Africa, Australia, so say Antarctica, South America, um, you know, bits of Europe. And of course, in Europe and North America, there are lots of bones still hanging around in museums that no one's ever looked at. I mean, they were they were wrapped up in plaster of Paris and taken back to the museum. And um, and they've just been, you know, in closets and under desks and they've not, not been looked at. I mean, I did my PhD not on dinosaurs, but on Ice Age cows in Britain. And I didn't have to go out into the field at all. All my research was done on old museum collections that nobody would ever looked at. Uh, and um, they'd just been put in a box, mark question mark, under the desk and waiting for someone, some some credulous soul to come along and look at them. So, you know, even though people are collecting stuff, there's always more stuff to collect. But there's all, all loads of stuff that's in museums. It's being reinterpreted, looked at with new methods. I mean, now there are all these amazing X-ray and synchrotron and... Uh, uh you know amazing methods to image fossils now um and reveal details nobody's ever seen before um and uh, which is shedding light on new things so even the fossils that have been knocking around in museums for a long time they've still got new things to tell us so there's always things to do sorry i do ramble on uh, that's okay i've always wondered something that i've been curious about is when a when when a bone is wrapped in plaster of Paris, do you you do you, how do you guys access the bone, or do you just do X-ray? Well, if it's in plaster, what happens is the bones when they're found in the field, if they're big dinosaur bones, they're uh -huh. usually big, but they're usually very fragile uh, and kind of shattered. So what what happens is they dig not the bone out, but they dig out the whole rock in okay. which the bone is is in, in tomb sometimes they have to dig under it to make it a, okay. a kind of pillar and some and then they cover it with plaster of paris like old-fashioned uh you know dressings for broken legs uh mm -hmm. and uh but i think uh, that's the old way of doing it i think they're sort of plastics and resins and that which are lighter um and then sometimes they have to be helicoptered out because they can weigh a lot um and then they're taken back to the museum and the plaster of paris is broken open and then quite often with the fossils they chip away at the rock very finely with dental tools and with very precise jets of um compressed air or sand you know like air braises just right. to peel away the rocks grain by grain and it can take years to prepare a big specimen um and uh so that's another reason why people are still finding stuff out because mm -hmm. it takes years and therefore a lot of money because you have to hire people whose job it is to prepare out this specimen. Wow. But now, but now you can use medical grade imaging technology to look inside the rock and see the fossil. And uh, it depends on the bones being a different density from the rock. And if you can do that, you can get a 3D picture of the fossil. You can blow it up. You can turn it round and round. You can explode the view, put it back together, make 3D prints out of it, all without taking out of the rock at all. Um, uh, and that's uh, quicker. But, it, of course, 
you know huge dinosaurs you can't do it because you can't get them into the scanners but right. um but just over the past few years people are now using medical grade scanners and stuff that can image down to microme micron level um uh the sort of things that reconstructive surgeons use to decide how to make a new uh, part for someone who when they're fixing someone who's been in a accident or something you can use those for fossils um and so there's all kinds of this imaging technology you can find out what's in it you know sometimes in much greater detail than you'd ever look if you actually got out the thing in front of your eyes um because you can go it down to really fine detail that you'd never see and also you can see the chemistry of it and that's great because you can find organic remains in the fossils you know not dna um necessarily because that doesn't survive the long down to the age of dinosaurs but you can find right. um bits of protein you can find the uh, uh remains of the colors of prehistoric feathers so you can actually now reconstruct the patterns on fossil birds from the tiny little blobs preserved in their in their feathers um and uh, uh and you couldn't do that without modern imaging technology um so there's a lot of uh, fantastic new science that mm -hmm. has been applied to these old bones to, to you know tell you new things about to bring these creatures back to life so you can see that you know dinosaurs were you know had feathers and their colors and uh um and they lived and died and you know had lives and uh you can reconstruct these in greater detail than ever before that's absolutely fascinating. Now, when you talk about the origins of the Earth, what, what do you, what do you, as far as a paleontologist goes, what do you mean? Well, the origins of the Earth. Well, you know that's uh, uh, fairly well constrained to four point six billion years ago, okay. uh, when the 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 Earth formed at about the same time as as the Sun and the rest of the planets, um, but they didn't all form in the way in the places that they are now there was a kind of it was kind of a slightly mad pool hall where things were whizzing around and bumping into each other and sometime in the very early earth um another small planet hit the earth uh, a kind of glancing blow and really? um yeah that well that's the latest theory um and it's consistent with the evidence because what it did was it it smashed off a lot of the infant earth uh, and the earth had rings for a, a little while um, uh, and the debris coagulated and became the moon and this explains a great deal because the earth is quite a small planet but it's unusual for a small planet to have such a large moon uh, mm. uh, and the moon we know from the moon rocks is very similar in composition to the earth it was all made of the same stuff um, most of the moons of the other planets are captured asteroids and they're quite different from the from the planets they're circling but the the moon is is quite big compared with the earth you know for a for a moon of a small planet it's quite big and it's made of the same stuff so the latest uh, thinking it's not universally accepted is that the moon was a similar what well, was smashed out of the earth by another another planet which disintegrated in the impact um uh, and uh, for a long time, the Earth was 
you know, very unstable. It was a ball of molten rock. The rocks hadn't settled down into the nice, neat layers that they are in now. And uh, other large asteroids kept um, kept smashing into it. And it took a while for the Earth to cool down. And when it cooled down, all the water vapor in the atmosphere condensed and it rained um, for millions of years. Even it made Seattle look like Arizona. And it was um, uh, raining for a long time. And a few other comets kept hitting, adding more water and ice and uh, other interesting chemicals uh, from which life eventually formed. Uh, but that that's the current thinking on on the origins of the earth that's interesting so then life had to at some point life had to start forming i mean is that why i mean if i remember correctly that a lot of life started forming in, in the oceans and the water right that's that's correct now it's one of the big questions is is how life began um and when did life began i mean some people tells me tells me that life begins when the kids leave home and the dogs are dead but <laughs> in terms of the in terms of the uh, origin of the earth uh life began really quickly i mean almost indecently quickly after the earth formed uh and the latest thoughts and again you know there's very little evidence there is some evidence but it's very very teasing uh that the earth that life evolved in very in the deep ocean uh, uh in in super hot super pressurized jets of minerals that came squirting out of the earth's crust um some of the uh most primitive organisms on the earth today primitive bacteria look like they had ancestors that were specialized in living in really hot places uh and um some of the very earliest rocks show very faint signs that there was life not fossils but here's a thing in a lot of rocks there are minerals tiny grains of minerals you know like sand grains and mm -hmm. grains of all sorts of things where there's a very tough mineral called zircon and it's the same stuff that is used to make cheap but flashy jewelry you know like cubic zirconia it looks very nice but it's much cheaper than say diamonds and you can make them in in laboratories well they're natural zircons and there was a tiny microscopic zircon that has been found in an early rock but the original rock that this zircon was in has been completely eroded away there's just this zircon and it's 4.1 billion years old and inside this zircon is a tiny smut of carbon like graphite like pencil pencil lead and there's a tiny tiny hint in the chemistry of this zircon that life might once have passed that way because life does things to the chemistry of carbon it alters it in characteristic ways so it's a bit like seeing the ghost of a smile of a cheshire cat half remembered in a dream um uh, that there was evidence of life really, really early on, um, hardly more, you know, 500 million years since the Earth formed and uh, possibly earlier. Now, I have to say this is very speculative. I mean, the, 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 um, the, the earliest record of life on Earth that everyone can agree on is three and a half billion years, which is a billion years after the Earth formed. But by that time, life was everywhere. I mean, th this life that people can agree on were whole reefs mm -hmm. of microbial organisms. I mean, big structures that you could have seen from space. 
So obviously life was in existence long before that. And there are signs, but it's very, very hard to interpret them. And, you know, scientists being scientists, you get two scientists in a room and you have three opinions. Uh, so, um, and, and, you know, these earliest evidence of life on Earth is very, very hard to pin down. And of course, um, it's you know, very, there's a great deal of argument. But I think everyone agrees that if there was plenty of life three and a half billion years ago, there was life earlier than that. Mm-hmm. And that if, if someone finds evidence for life, you know, 4.1 billion years ago, then that's amazing, but it's not completely wacky and out of the park. Uh, so, um, and this has a very, very interesting corollary. And uh, that is that if life forms so soon on an ordinary planet like the Earth, it probably originates everywhere or anywhere that it possibly can really quickly. And I'm not talking about complex life and aliens with spaceships. I'm just talking about very simple uh, microscopic life. I think it's very common in the universe. I think that, you know, you can't really have planets without it. I think it's just, I think it just happens. Yeah. I think it's just a part of planetary formation. Of course, we don't know, but we, we may soon will, I reckon. How did we get from microbe-sized, you know, sized life to the next step? Well, the thing about life is if life had a motto, it would be whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Because mm-hmm. the, thing, the thing about life, once a planet gets life, it's very, very hard to get rid of. Because um, the thing about life is that it, it makes its own, it starts to make its own rules. It, it starts to evolve into different directions. And, and when the environment starts changing, life changes with it to solve the problems. Um, so uh, these microbes originated in the deep sea, um, but you know, by three and a half billion years ago, they they got to the surface of the earth, uh, mm-hmm. into the sunshine, and had started. They invented uh, a kind of sunscreen to screen them away from the harmful rays of the sun, um, and that sunscreen became a pigment that uh, allowed the tiny microbes to generate food from sunlight. In other words, what we call photosynthesis. So harm became harvest. And once they'd done that, you get the start of an ecosystem. You have creatures feeding on the plants. That, well, they weren't plants, they were bacteria. And you get, right. whole, com- you get whole communities of bacteria. Because some of the earliest bacteria, they did really interesting chemistry. They didn't live on hydrogen and oxygen and carbon. They lived on iron and sulfur and did kind of chemistry to get energy out of them. Um, so what you do is you get communities of bacteria because the, the waste products from one bacterium can be the uh, can be the, the meal for the other bacterium because bacteria may look small and rather boring. I mean, either they're rod shaped or they're spherical or they're spiral shaped, mm-hmm. but they've got the most amazing digestions and they can live in all kinds of conditions. Um, you know, they're bacteria that can live in space. They're bacteria that can live in nuclear waste dumps. Uh, they're bacteria that can live in crude oil. Uh, they're bacteria that can live absolutely everywhere, but they often form little communities to share information. But then there was a big change about two and a half billion years ago, and it was called the Great Oxidation Event. event. And this was the first disaster in the history of the Earth. 
because some of the creatures uh, began to do a kind of photosynthesis in which they got energy by breaking up water into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, and they didn't know this because they're just bacteria. They didn't have any brains. But oxygen is a lethal poison because mm -hmm. they'd all evolved in the absence of oxygen. Oxygen is, is colourless, odourless, um, tasteless and unbelievably chemically reactive. And um, most organisms died. Uh, this is about two and a half billion years ago. And then it is as if to add insult to injury. The earth was covered in ice, miles thick in wow. an ice age. The whole, the whole planet was covered in ice for 300 million years. So, this, so what with oxygen and then this ice age, um, life found a way. And what happened was some of the bacteria that all lived in communities took that to another level. They all got together and formed an integrated structure, which we call the cell. We, you know, like human cells, we're all made of cells. Yeah. Um, but each cell is much bigger and more efficient than a bacterial cell. And these cells, which are called nucleated cells, could do more with less. Mm -hmm. they, could, uh, they could use resources more efficiently. And it's that kind of evolutionary step change that's allowed life to, to conquer adversity. Because after that event, some of the cells and there's still loads of bacteria around and there's still lots of organisms that are made of single cells um, but some of the cells learn to get together and become another step change in complexity to become multicellular organisms so quietly over the next billion years which most geologists call the boring billion because geologists of that time don't get out of bed unless they can be promised some vast apocalypse huh. um, over the over the boring billion there were signs of simple multicellular creatures, seaweeds and little fungi, nothing, nothing fancy. But then, what do you know, there was another big ice age in which the Earth was completely covered in ice for millions of years. And out of that became a new multicellular creature, the animals. These were integrated multicellular structures that were mean and tough and looking for trouble. And so uh, between about 800 and 600 million years ago, that's when animals burst onto the scene. I mean, burst in a relative term, but right. certainly by, by 500 million years ago, all the kinds of animals we know now had appeared in some form or another, including our distant ancestors, the earliest fishes. Uh, so that was called the Cambrian explosion, um, uh, which was caused by another great biblical type disaster in which the whole of the land surface on the earth was weathered off into the ocean and the ocean was full of lovely minerals called uh, full of calcium minerals which was great for animals because the animals were starting to eat each other so they used the calcium to make teeth um, if they were eating or armor if they were being eaten so that's why in the Cambrian period, about 540 million years ago, you suddenly get fossils in the fossil record after not seeing very much, because fossils are mostly formed out of the hard parts of animals, the teeth and shells and bones. Uh, and that's because they're mineralized with calcium minerals. So it's then that you start seeing, you know, the usual fossils that rock hounds will have, you know, clams and trilobites and things mm -hmm. like that. What drew, some of these fish out of the water was the quest for food well out onto land um well 
it was the fish didn't start it. The, the, the going onto land is a hard problem. If you live in the water and you get all your oxygen, it's dissolved in the water, right. and you don't have to worry about supporting your weight. You just float around, and the temperature is nice and even, and all your food is all around you. Um, the land going onto land is it's an environment almost as alien as the moon. I mean, the sun beats down, it dries you out. Uh, you have to support your own weight. You can't breathe because you need to have a water, watery surface to breathe. So um, going onto land happened very cautiously. It started with little plants that would start, you know, going above the waterline um, and forming little crusts on the, on, the, on the land. Only tiny, you know, a few centimetres high at most because they had to support their weight against the against gravity and that's when they started becoming trees and then it was followed by insects and other creepy crawlies and it was only about 400 to 300 million years ago that some fish had the notion of coming onto land now these fish were big fish and they had stumpy little fins on legs they had mm -hmm. little legs but they didn't terminate in digits they terminated in fins and they lived in very very shallow water they were quite big, but they were predators. They used to hang around until something would come along and then they'd snap away at it. Um, but sometimes the ponds would dry out. And uh, if that did, they'd try very quickly to get underwater again as quickly as possible. But some of these fish became used to, you know, some fish live in the deep sea and some live in the shallow sea and some live in ponds. So here are some fish that specialised in a new kind of depth that is negative depth water of negative depth. So basically the early animals that lived on land that evolved fingers and toes were very really like fish that evolved in you know, water of negative depth. They still went to the sea or to water to reproduce like frogs do now. And um, it, so it was a long time before they became fully on land. And the big step to do that was the evolution of what we call the egg, you know, more than just frog spawn, you mean the egg that actually had a shell that allowed uh, the tiny embryo to have its own private spa, its own private pond that would be protected against the elements uh, and would give it enough food uh, uh, in its own little private capsule until it was ready to hatch. And that didn't happen until, you know, 300 million years ago. So it took a long, 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 long time. And even now we're still tied to the water, even though we don't have to go into the water to breed, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, human embryo looks just like a, a little reptile embryo or a little fish embryo. Um, mm -hmm. It still has all the right membranes that the egg had. It just doesn't have a shell because the mother is the shell, as it were. Right. Um, right. But it, they all form in much the same way. And uh, in a little private pond, you know, the amniotic sac. So when a woman is about to give birth, you know, her waters break. That's the amniotic membrane breaking. Basically, that's the little fluid filled pond that the embryo is growing in. And that's a relic of the first days when um, our ancestors came up with the idea of having a little egg with a shell. Because, you know, some mothers were very clingy and didn't lay the eggs. The eggs just stayed inside and basically they developed inside the whole time. Um, uh, so um, 
so that's that's how how that happened. So even though we're now fully on land, we still have little memories in our anatomy and in our reproduction, especially that hark back to our fishy ancestor. You should go read Neil Shubin's book, Your Inner Fish, which will tell you all about this. I never thought about it that way, you know, as far as the embryo. It never occurred to me. Because when I think about the animals, you know, these things coming on the land, what comes to mind is like the tortoises, you know, because mm. they're able to live in both environments, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. Um, well, you see, the thing is, we still have amphibians, you know, frogs and toads and right. salamanders and, and, and things like that. And they, uh, some of them have internal, they, they hold their eggs internally. Um, but they but they haven't got these eggs with shells like turtles do uh-huh. uh, and tortoises they have eggs with shells they're, they're reptiles and, and uh, modern turtles that evolved in the Triassic period about uh, 240 230 million years ago uh, a lot of them were actually aquatic reptiles at the time um, uh, but um, uh, yeah these are these are these came from a lineage of animals that were fully evolved to live on land and they but they laid eggs and each one was a little pond so even now you have these seagoing turtles that mm-hmm. you know it's like the opposite of an amphibian an amphibian will live on land and go into water to to lay its eggs but a, a sea turtle will live in the water and comes on land to lay its eggs right. and buries its eggs in the beach and then and then goes back into the sea and the little babies hatch and then crawl off into the sea mm-hmm. um and uh, that's that's what happens. Well, though, is, isn't it like that with the alligators too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They 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 lay eggs too. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, most of the snakes and lizards and so on. But some of these animals have internal. Uh, they they ha- hatch their eggs internally or don't really have shells. Um, I think there's some lizards uh, that do this. I'm not really quite sure. But there's a great right. deal of variation. There's a great deal of variation in in the reproductive modes of reptiles. I mean, some of them lay eggs, some of them don't lay eggs, some of them give birth to young that are pretty much like tiny lizards or whatever. So as evolution, as this keeps going on, of course, big big fish eat little fish, yada, yada, mm. yada. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's a whole survival thing. At some point now, like you say, appendages started growing. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, in this evolutionary cycle. So what got us to the point where we were, where, where um, you know, the Neolithic kicks in and, and we're standing upright and all that? Oh, well, this is one of the great mysteries. I mean, I think it's one of the great mysteries. Why, it, why is it that humans got up on our hind legs and walked? I mean, it's insane. Uh, the dinosaurs were very good at being bipeds. Right. They, uh, uh, they were very good at it. They had, their, they, they were beautifully designed. The center of gravity of a dinosaur was on its hips so it had a short body and a neck at the front and a long long tail at the back to counterbalance it so the dinosaurs could walk bipedally dance strut uh, their arms were free and they were beautifully mobile but they kept their backbone horizontal just like backbones were always meant to be because when the backbone originated in the earliest fish it was a horizontal structure held in tension in you know in engineering terms right but we our ancestors were climbing up and down trees and invented this 
kind of bipedalism, which was a bit like climbing up and down trees, but without the trees. So we were kind of upright. So rather than having the backbone, which is a horizontal structure held in tension, it's turned through a right angle, turned through 90 degrees to become a vertical structure held in compression. Bring on back pain, lumbago, aches and pains, arthritis, neck ache. The biggest cause of absenteeism in workers today is back pain. Um, and it's totally maladaptive being bipedal. Uh, it's one of the great mysteries. There's a book I've got to read by Jeremy De Silva, who, who is a paleontologist about walking upright. I can't remember the name of the book, um, but I, it's on my never-ending list of books to read. Um, why did we become bipeds? Well, it's a big, big mystery, but there were stages in it. Um, the earliest, our earliest bipedal ancestors were kind of like bipedal chimps. They weren't any brighter than chimps. Um, they were also still quite good up trees. They could still climb. Um, and there was a great deal of variation. But things changed about two million years ago when there was a new kid on the block, Homo erectus, the first truly, there were members of the genus Homo before that, but Homo erectus was the first one that really looked more human than chimp. And they stood completely upright, didn't go in for climbing, and they'd, um, they were very good at, they, they could walk, in fact, they could all walk, all these early things could walk, but what Homo erectus could do that the other ones couldn't do was run. It was a long-distance runner, and, and this was shown by my friend Dan Lieberman, who's a professor, he's a paleontologist, he's a professor in Harvard, but he also runs marathons barefoot, he's known as the barefoot professor. And he researches on people walking in, you know, people who've never worn shoes, how they walk, how they run. And he and one of his students came up with the idea that early humans, it wasn't just walking that made us human, it was running, particularly long distance running. Because mm -hmm. humans, humans in terms of animals are not great sprinters. Um, I mean, Usain Bolt is a fantastic sprinter, but, you know, he could be outrun by a cheetah. But what humans are very good at is endurance running. Humans can run for mile after mile after mile and not get tired. And this is what, um, you know, hunters, people who still do hunting you know, in the old fashioned way in, in southern Africa, they still do. They're chasing an antelope and they will chase it for a bit and the antelope will get tired and then everyone will stop and then they will chase the antelope for a bit longer. And they can keep this up indefinitely, but the antelope can't. The antelope will die of heat exhaustion. Eventually, the antelope will just fall over and die. Um, uh, so the uh, Homo erectus was like a pack hunting predator, like hunting dogs or wolves or lions uh, um, are, are now. So, uh, and they would basically chase down prey until they got exhausted. Um, and so, you know, human beings, your Homo erectus compared to the animals was relatively hairless and could mm -hmm. sweat, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, had an arrangement of, of, of the limbs. So, you know, when you're running or if you're not running, you see, you know, the intro to the six million dollar man and you see, you see the guy, the guy running. Well, you see his arms are moving out of phase with his legs. 
his right arm goes forward and but his left arm goes back and his left arm leg goes well you see it's out of phase you can only do that if you've got a waist um and chimpanzees don't have waists they don't have a nice they, they've got a kind of pot-bellied structure and uh, so did a lot of the early bipedal humans um, and also another thing that we can do is when when you see the six million dollar man he's always got his head pointing forward no matter what his arms and legs are doing he's always got his eyes on the prize and for that you've got to have a neck and it also it's got to have a ligament that can that that ties your uh it's called a nuchal ligament it, it connects the back of your head to your to your backbone and apes don't have a nuchal ligament humans have one and so do dogs so do hunting dogs and it's all to do with pack hunting predation so uh this um these adaptations first appeared in homo erectus that was a was a was a was a hunting animal and that's uh, also homo erectus became specialized for eating more meat now um the, the before that human uh, ancestors ate all sorts of things you know mm -hmm. carrion vegetables insects uh you know uh, anything they could get their hands on a bit like chimpanzees do now fruit but um at the time of homo erectus there were basically two kinds of human there was one called paranthropus that was specialized as specialized vegetarian it was like the human version of a cow it had huge teeth and big chewing muscles and just chewed all day long because you have to to get stuff out of roots which was and the other specialist was homo erectus that specialized on meat uh and uh meat's easier to digest uh mm -hmm. you don't have to have such a huge gut to digest it um and another thing homo erectus um started to do was use fire to cook things with and uh fire of course makes meat and vegetables more tender and as anybody who has a barbecue knows it's much more sociable to have a cookout so uh cooking became a a very sociable activity and also it killed all the nasties and parasites that mm -hmm. that live in meat so um it was still a long time before we became in quotes human because homo erectus wasn't human it didn't think like a human um it didn't have art it didn't have religion um it didn't have a, a an inner life as it were uh, if a homo erectus died it would just lie there being so much carrion it wasn't disposed of or treated with reverence like even elephants do right um but that came later with Homo erectus's descendants when they left Africa. Because that Homo erectus evolved in Africa. It was the first human to leave Africa. Right, right, right. I want to digress a little bit because I know I skipped over the dinosaurs. Why? Um, the question that, uh, that I've always thought about too over the years is, you know, you have these, these smaller creatures that, that came onto the earth or, or came onto land to survive. How did, you know, why did they end up getting so large? Was it because uh, of the conditions of the earth at the time or, or what was going on there? Well, dinosaurs are, are very special. They have a very, very unique structure because if you, it's now pretty much established that birds are the yes. descendants of dinosaurs. And if you look at the anatomy of all dinosaurs, even the really big ones, basically they're birds. They're just giant featherless huge four-footed birds and there are several reasons for that one is their bone structure it's very light um the dinosaur bones are miracles of engineering there's no bone in there that doesn't need to be there 
all the bone there follows lines of force that need to support it, like some kind of um, structure made out of scaffold poles or something. If you look mm -hmm. at these dinosaur vertebrae, they're even the big ones, they're beautiful, um, beautifully economically structured, uh, just like bird bones are. And another thing is just like bird bones, they're hollow. Um, uh, bird, bird bones are hollow uh, and they're very strong. They're like, you know, uh, tubes, they're tubular, like tubular steel. A lot mm -hmm. of them are fused together. But the other thing about birds and uh, dinosaurs and other reptiles is they're full of air. I mean, if you go and pick up a chicken, I mean, the size of a chicken, you think it was going to weigh as much as a bowling ball, but it doesn't. It's much lighter than you'd imagine. And this is because birds are full of air. Now, when we breathe in into our lungs, you know, then we breathe out again. Um, and the air goes in and the air goes out again. It's not a very efficient way of breathing because it doesn't replace all the carbon dioxide in the air. All the carbon dioxide has to come to the lungs through the blood system and that creates heat. And it's, you know, you lose a lot of water. But birds and dinosaurs breathe in a very different way. The air goes in through the mouth but it doesn't immediately come out again. It goes into other little air sacs that go all the way through the body, um, even into the bones. If you look at bird bones and dinosaur bones, they're little holes where the air sacs went into the bones. Um, and they're air sacs around all the internal organs. Now, critically, um, there were air sacs around the liver. Now, the liver is the big engine of the body. That's where all the food from your gut get goes to um to be digested uh, to be repurposed so the liver is the, the chemical factory of the body and because of that it gets really really hot and the problem is getting rid of all that heat now in a mammal like us it has to go through the bloodstream all that heat and then it dissipates further in the body and then it gets to the lungs so when you breathe out your breath is hot and that's because you're trying to lose shed all this heat but the dinosaurs were air-cooled. They had a direct air-cooled link between their liver and their internal organs to the outside. And because of that, that meant they could get much larger than you would think. If, if, they, were, if they were water-cooled like mammals, they wouldn't be able to get much larger than big elephants. And the biggest mammal that ever lived was about four metres, five metres at the shoulder. It's a gigantic hornless, hornless rhinoceros that lived about 30 million years ago. Um, but it was quite spindly. It had long spindly legs, but it was you know, very big. But it was a tiny compared with dinosaurs because dinosaurs were air-cooled. And that was one of the keys to their, to a, allow them to become really big um, because they could get big without boiling themselves from the inside out. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I'm learning a lot more than I ever knew before. I mean, that's 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 your job, but you know, it's 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 stuff that, like you say, old school did not teach us this stuff. This is all, this is all over the years stuff. You well, know? a lot of it's fairly new. I mean, this stuff about uh, uh, the dinosaur heat was um, oh. it was in a long long paper by a friend of mine called Martin Sander a few years ago um about why dinosaurs could grow big there were other reasons as well but um mm -hmm. and also the discoveries that dinosaurs had an anatomy much like birds do uh they had the bones they had the internal structure they had the air sacs um uh, so dinosaurs were always ready they were always ready always built to fly um mm -hmm. i mean the feathers 
as well, but they had to have the internal structure and had to have the physiology and the structure to be able to handle all that heat. That was really, it was the heat exchange that was the limiting factor on size. Well, and it's like you say, it, it, it makes my mind wonder about it because like you say, the bones were hollow. So, I mean, that's carrying a lot of weight. Especially you know, when well, you're talking about things like like like, like Brachiosaurus or Brontosaurus, I mean that's a lot of weight for these for these hollow bones to be carrying. Ah, oh, but the thing is, engineering structures, yeah. it's the hollow ones that are the strongest, um, because if you have a solid structure, you have to move all its weight. You have mm -hmm. to move all the, all that weight, all the middle and the outside. But if you have a strong, tough outer shell, basically all you need is the outer shell, and you can see that when you look at you know, uh, skyscrapers or airplanes or scaffold poles or any uh, uh, lightweight structure is usually um, as hollow as it can be because all the forces are conducted by the outside rim. There aren't any forces going inside, so you don't need to reinforce it. Um, so this is why um, the bones of these huge animals are constructed economically. They only have to bear the force they have to bear because they don't want to carry any more weight than they absolutely need to. Mm -hmm. um, so even though these dinosaurs were huge and heavy, there was no excess weight on these dinosaurs. They were very, very well put together, you know, as structures. And when I was an undergraduate, I was uh, at the University of Leeds back in the 80s. I had the immense fortune to have as my mentor a man called McNeil Alexander, who was the, he was a physicist, and he was the expert in how animals move and how they're put together and the physics of how these animals move. And ever since then, I've been fascinated in, um, by just the engineering of, of animals. Why are animals, why do they have hollow bones? How is it that animals can fly? And how big can you be and still fly? And what is the mechanics of walking along? And it's one of the things, I mean, you know, we walk along each day. It's one of the things we do naturally. And yet it's one of the things that people still don't quite understand. How is it that humans can walk? How is it that a baby without being taught can suddenly get up on its hind legs and it starts cruising along the furniture and then it can walk? And it's incredible, you know, second by second neuromuscular feedback control. Nobody has yet made a robot that can move with the grace of a human being mm -hmm. it may happen but um you know the, the still you know at nature i get papers you know manuscripts on the fundamentals of human locomotion how our feet work how our legs move how we move you know these days physicists can see inside atoms and to the edge of the observable universe but we still don't know everything there is to know about something every day that we do all the time like walking right um right. which is just just amazes me really that there's so, you know there are things that you know they are, you don't have to peer into space or think of anything exotic to look at things that we still don't really know about such as mm -hmm. how do we how do we walk Mm -hmm. It's just one of those amazing things that, that, that fascinates me. It is amazing. And I was just thinking, too, while you were saying that birds, uh, you know, being direct relations to the dinosaurs. So you think about even modern birds and some of the wingspans on, on even the hawks, you know, and how, how mm -hmm. wide those wingspans are. And they're still able to get airborne. I mean, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a, there is a limit on size because the, the dinosaurs, there were very big dinosaurs, but they were a lot of very small ones as well. I mm. mean, we tend to think of the big ones because, you know, mm. they're amazing. I mean, they're just right. gobsmackingly huge, but there are a lot of very small ones. I mean, there is a limit on, on flight. I mean, the biggest flying birds now are swans and geese uh, and, you know, animals of that size. And when you see them running along, to try and take flight uh, you can see that if they are any bigger they wouldn't be able to fly at all it takes an immense effort to get them up and some of the really big flyers they don't flap very much they soar they tend to use they're like sailplanes they tend to use the thermals and they use the winds and currents but albatrosses which have these really long wingspans don't do much flapping. You can't flap wings like that very successfully without breaking them because they're just too big and too long. But they're really good at gliding and soaring using tiny, tiny variations in the in the in winds and currents. And they can basically go for thousands of miles without actually expending any energy. And the thing about it's only the small flyers that flap a lot. And the thing about uh, flying is it, it uses an awful lot of energy. So although a lot of birds flew, um, there are quite a lot of birds that wasted no time at all in becoming flightless if they could help it. And um, one of the interesting things about dinosaurs is the, the little family of dinosaurs that became birds, they were related to other families of dinosaurs, you know, like velociraptors and things like that. Right. And it was the smaller members of the, these families were um, were the flying ones. And they were the earlier ones, which suggested that as they evolved larger sizes, they stopped flying. And that suggests that some of the dinosaurs that we think of had ancestors that were flying. They were the dragons that fell to the earth, um, which is, you know, a, a, a um, uh, an idea that was thought of by a dinosaur uh, artist called Greg Paul. He had this idea. Um, but it doesn't seem unreasonable at all because there are even some extinct birds, you know, that lived millions of years ago that were completely flightless, but they would have had flying ancestors. And we can all think of flightless birds, you know, some penguins and ostriches, the whole groups of birds that became flightless millions of years ago, as well as other birds that got marooned on islands with no predators, so like dodos and Mm -hmm. things like that that um that, that and, and then became very big because they didn't have to fly um so you know flying is great flying is a terrific thing to do but it's extremely difficult and energy consuming so flyers only fly if they really have to fly interesting uh when you when we talk about the extinction of the dinosaur well they didn't actually mm. go extinct because we got the birds obviously mm. and, you know we got our alligators and you know and our other reptiles mm. People tend to think that, and I'm not saying everybody does, but they think of the asteroid hitting the Earth or the meteor hitting the Earth and like it was instantaneous or something. But it wasn't instantaneous. This had to take a while to, to, to wipe them all out, right? Well, it, in geological terms, it didn't take very long at all. Uh, okay. I mean, it was, uh, it was um, uh, one, one day in, in, northern, in the Northern Hemisphere springtime uh, that the, the asteroid... Uh, swung in quite low, a glancing blow from the northeast, and mm -hmm. hit uh, what is now Mexico at 20,000 kilometers an hour, and basically bored straight through the Earth's crust. 
um, and causing the uh, explosion and the wildfires and the clouds and the dust and the tsunamis and, and everything. But the thing that I discovered when writing my book, which is called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, uh, was that this asteroid took a long time in coming. It was like all the great overnight sensations. It was, um, uh, it, it took a great deal of time in the preparation. Um, back, you know, a hundred million years before the dinosaurs died out, <coughs> there was an there was a collision out in the in the outer solar system, in the asteroid belt. Um, some asteroid, an asteroid hit another asteroid and made all these fragments. Uh, and the asteroid that was left over was is now an asteroid called Baptistina. But then uh, the collision created about a thousand bullets, as it were, a thousand fragments of varying sizes that dispersed into the inner solar system. And it was one of these a hundred million years after the collision that hit the Earth. So I didn't know until, until recently that this great event was was basically the dinosaurs were marked. Their card was marked a hundred million years before the collision. Um, now, the thing about a collision like this, you can't really evolve your way out of it. It just happens really suddenly. Uh, what would have happened is the um, Earth would have been, well, there would have been uh, the whole area of the Caribbean region would have been basically sterilized. Um, uh, there were tsunamis, there were wildfires. And another thing that the asteroid did, it just happened to hit a part of the world that was full of gypsum, which is a sulfur mineral, it basically left over from an ancient seafloor. You know, gypsum is the stuff you make sheetrock out of. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it basically vaporized all the gypsum and turned it into sulfur dioxide, which went into the atmosphere and... Uh, Sulfur dioxide is very good at making lots and lots of clouds. Mm -hmm. And so it covered the earth in clouds and shut out the sun for maybe years. And and, and that would have closed down the plant life. Uh, and therefore everything or most things would have died. But not everything died. Um, in fact, there was some research that even at the ground zero, where even in the crater, life returned within 30,000 years. You can still see little microbes living there 30,000 years after the impact. Um, uh, but it took a few million years for life to really pick up after, the, after this, this, uh, this impact. There have been other impacts in the history of life um, because, you know, even though, you know, we're talking about the early days of the earth when things were banging into each other all the time you do get these impacts happen all the time i mean you just have to look at the moon and all the pictures of the outer planets and the moons everything is even tiny fly specks of asteroids are covered in even smaller flea specks of tiny craters and um so this happens all the time and the reason we don't see it on the earth is because we have an atmosphere and we have weather and we have life that mm -hmm. scrubs all the evidence so there are only a few craters like, you know, the meteor crater in Arizona and there are one or two others that still look like craters. And until quite recently, people thought they were volcanic cones. Mm -hmm. People didn't really believe that meteorites could leave big craters like that. Um, 
but they do and they have and uh, this is why uh, scientists now are uh, taking an inventory of the asteroids and small bits of rock that whiz past the earth to see if we're any danger of being hit by one and you know every so often they do pass quite close to the earth moon system um and uh, uh you know they could cause a great deal of damage uh, and there are various ideas for missions to spaceships to come and kind of slightly nudge one out of the way i don't think we're going to send bruce willis up in a spacecraft to, to 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 do one but there are various missions to try and work out how you would actually deflect an asteroid that was going to hit but um uh, so the thing about it is it's a it's one of these risks that is not likely ever to happen but if it did it would be disastrous so it's very difficult to plan for i understand it's, this has been absolutely fascinating talking to you and well thank you I, I always love the opportunity to. I always have love the opportunity to hear the sound of my own voice and talk just, on the airwaves. Really, I just love talking to people like you. Because thank just, you very much. Thank you. I'm so into this stuff. It all came back to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> From when I was a kid, <laughs> stuff. You know, at one point I wanted to be an archaeologist when when I, when I was mm. a kid, and things changed later on and all that. But. I mean, it's just, I mean, if I can get a hold of a book like your book or whatever, I'm still reading that stuff. You know, I'm still looking it up. Oh, well. It absolutely well, intrigues me. You know, me. you have to find your inner child, really. You know, yeah. you have to think, you know, why is it? It's the great thing is to be a child who are just fascinated by the darndest things, you know, and ask, you know, seemingly deep, profound questions, but actually are the sort of questions that we all should be asking, but we're all grown up and we've, we're, in, we're more interested in the, in paying the rent or, you know, getting the car start or right. boring things like earning a living and, you know, things like that. But uh, you have to reconnect with your inner child. That's the joy of it. It's just, I mean, I've got the best job in the world. I'm an editor at Nature and I have a ringside seat as I have for 34 years in in the great science that comes across my desk. It's just, it's just the best thing ever. It, I'm so privileged to be well, able to be do so that fun. and be able to explain it to people. Absolutely. Let me ask you a silly question, though. I know you probably get asked this all the time. No, there's there's no such thing as a silly question. Do you think the Jurassic Park movies have have um, created a lot more interest in in, in, in paleontology? Oh, oh gosh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, uh, well, the interest was kind of there, of course. It wasn't always there. I mean, when I was a kid, dinosaurs were weren't cool, believe it or not. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the Jurassic Park movies helped cement them in the public consciousness. And um, I remember going to a talk by Jack Horner, who's a paleontologist. He's a, a old buddy of mine. He's he was the consultant on the original Jurassic Park, and Sam Neill's character was modelled on Jack. Um, although Sam Neill and Jack don't look anything like each other, you can <laughs> certainly see they were. And I remember Jack giving this talk. He said he came, he was talking about hunting for dinosaurs, and he said uh, he said um, now I'm open for questions, but no hard ones, so no kids, because it's always <laughs> the kids who know more. And uh, uh, oh oh yeah yeah yes, I mean dinosaurs are always a big attraction, but I I, I like fossil fish better. They're much quieter. Yeah. There yeah. you go. There you go. Less intimidating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's quieter and less 
Um, Unless they're like the, 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 the thing things. they had that, the, 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 that jumped out of the water and ate the girl, remember? Yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah. One of those, yeah. In fact, the new mm. movie has one of those too. Oh, well, I'm sure to go and see it. I went to see Jurassic World. In, right. Uh, oh, it's been such a big uh, change. I mean, I went to see Jurassic Park when it came out. I got a press ticket and I, my wife came with me and... Um, we were sitting in the front row of this big movie theatre in central London, and it was just astonishing. We were sitting in the front row, and the T-Rex came out and went, rawr, and we in our seats went, and, um, <laughs> and then, you know, many years later, I saw Jurassic World in 3D. I went to a press screening, and it was still great. And oh, yeah. even though the, the dinosaurs don't have feathers on and blah, right. like they probably should, but if they had feathers, they'd look like giant chickens, uh, but... Um, which probably wouldn't be as scary. Uh, no. But, you know, I'm looking forward to Jurassic World Dominion, I think it's called. Um, but we all love a good fantasy movie. I mean, I'm looking forward to The Rings of Power on Amazon right. you know, in the in the fall. So uh, my daughter never ceases to remind me that it's coming. Even Disney's thing, you know, on, on their silly ride that they have with the... Um... Journey back to you know primeval world. That's even spectacular when you think about it because they were the first ones to actually a animate dinosaurs. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so even yeah. now, as, as generic as this as it only is now, it's still fun to go through and see. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's it's. Uh... <laughs> I, I remember that I, I I went to I went to well I was teaching in UCLA. In eighteen ninety in ninety six, I was teaching yeah. a graduate class, and and one of my students took and took me and my wife to, you know, Anaheim to the first Disney Disneyland. But I've been with my kids to Disneyland in Paris, and yeah, you know, it, it's um, you just have to be a kid really, uh, and uh, it was certainly a grand day out. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a very very good book called by Boria Sachs called. Dinomania, and that explains why it is that people are, you know, fascinated by dinosaurs. But that's another whole discussion. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for coming on, and I really appreciate well, thank it. I you. would love to have you on again to pick your brain because, boy, I had a blast. <laughs> so I did I. It was lovely. Immensely talking to you, and if, if if you'd like to come on again, that would be great. We'll, we'll schedule well, that. Well, you know, you know, you know, because of the time difference, it's quite a lot of fun. But I mean, I'm sure we we can do it. You know, okay. we have the technology. Yeah, we can do this. We can do this. That's right. I'm online with England right now. It's all good. Yeah, okay. I know. This technology. Is, this is fabulous technology. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah. But thank you so much. How can people um, find you? Well, um, I'm all over the internet like a cheap suit. Uh, if you just <laughs> put in Henry G. And my book has a website called Deep Breath. A very short history of life on earth dot com. Uh, okay. And uh, uh, so that should come up and um, the books available in in the proverbial all good bookstores and um, uh, so I'm, I'm not hard to find uh, on if you, you don't have to look very hard these days to find me all right sir well thank you so much I know it's late for you over there so I'm gonna let you get to bed but I appreciate you. you coming on and thank you so so much and I will be in contact with you because I love talking to you it was so fun it was just great well, thank you very much, and likewise. So I was going to say All good right. night. All right, sir. Good night. Have a good one.
Okay, that was so fun, and I am a dinosaur nut. Like I said, growing up, um, I was just so into that stuff, and in a lot of ways, I'm still into that stuff, you know. Um, it's just my camera angle here. Uh, I want to thank you guys for coming. I know it's an early show, but this will be on replay later on for everybody else. Tomorrow's guest is Robert Greenberg. We're going to shift back to paranormal. Life after death, Robert's daughter. Uh, Robert lost his daughter um, when she was very young, and he wanted to find ways to communicate with her. So he and his wife started investigating and looking into different ways me uh, mediums work and everything, and they have put together a center uh, where people can come and 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 study that stuff so uh he'll be on tomorrow to talk to us usual time 6 30 p.m pacific uh but uh it's going to be a good show i can honestly say that i enjoyed henry i, I want to get him back on i mean there's so much more i wanted to talk about with the origins of earth but you can only do so much you know in an hour but uh i think we did okay i think i think i pretty much covered everything that you know just a blanket um if you like the show Share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. You know, we're trying to get as many subscribers as possible over on YouTube. If you are watching on YouTube and you look down at the bottom right-hand corner, you will see a little ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. That is our mascot for California Haunts. And if you click on that, that will make you a subscriber. So you'll get all the cool updates on when our videos are out or when we're going to have something coming up for you to watch. So you can decide if you want to see it or not. But uh, please subscribe because that's what we want. The more subscribers, the merrier for us. And, and that's what we're trying to build up is, is our subscriptions. Um, you can visit our website as well at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And usually, except for today, but usually we are, for people that don't, you know, can't get on YouTube all the time, you can actually watch these things live on our website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Or you can go up into our archives. Go back for a year and a half and look at the stuff we yeah, that we've done, including, and it's going to be happening very soon here, the full library from Blog Talk Radio, the full links and everything to go there from when we were doing the show on Blog Talk for 15 years. So those are coming up. It's a lot of work to get those put on, but that's that, that that's what I've been busily doing late at night as I as I listen to other shows and try and try and find you know the best guests possible. Um, that thing that's tickering down the bottom. The reason why it's there is because, as I said earlier, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team is nonprofit. So everything uh, comes out of my pocket because I'm the owner of the team, obviously. And um, so, you know, the lighting here, the camera, the mics, the little clock I have on the side to let me know if I'm going overtime, you know, the computers. I, you know, if something goes wrong with those, it comes out of my pocket to replace. So um, I'm, I'm trying to run this thing on donation as much as I can because there is no income coming in to the team per se. So uh, I have to be able to afford my bills like internet and uh, the service for StreamYard and whatnot. And the only way I can do that is with donations. And uh, if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it because I want to keep bringing guests. I'm a journalist. I'm a photo journalist, photojournalist by trade. And this is what I love to do. I love to interview people. Okay. And so the way I can do that is through this show. And I enjoy doing it. I enjoy bringing the show to you. And I want to keep doing that. So if you could find it in your heart to donate just a little bit, $5, whatever, you know, any little bit helps. And that's at paypal.me at California Haunts. And I'll repeat that, paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, 
I, we do have a Venmo and go into Venmo and type in California haunts and you can do it there, but I would really appreciate it because we really need to keep this thing. You know, I really want to keep this thing going and you're going to start seeing some different stuff. We're going to start getting a producer in here to help with the chat room and different things. So um, it's just things I want to do. You know, there's, there's projects and there's, there's this advancement we want to make with the show. And uh, that's what I'm currently working on right now. Um, advertisers, we're trying to get advertisers. We, you can tell we've, we've been advertising uh, the Mystical Minds Convention. And we're going to be doing that all, we're going to be doing that for a long time, but, you know, because they also have a convention in October. But we need to get more advertisers to help support what we're doing as well here. But, uh, you know, but uh, I think it's a good show and I hope you think it's a good show. And so I hope that you'll come and support us, you know, and uh, if you do come up with an idea uh, for a guest and we use the idea on the air, we will we will send you a T-shirt, a California Haunts Radio T-shirt. I don't have one right here with me at the moment, but that logo that's behind me here, let me see if I can move a little bit. There we go. That's the logo that's on the T-shirt. So you get a T-shirt with that, with, with that logo on the back and the information about when, when the show's on and all that. So... Um, Please do. You know, if you have any ideas, um, email me. Uh, you can email me at caesarsghost123 at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Facebook. Or you can even find California Haunts Radio on Facebook. But please, you know, come up with ideas to help us get even better guests on here. You know? But anyway, I want to let you guys go because it's time. We've been on over an hour. And uh, I know it's Valentine's Day. So I don't know, you know if you're going to be having a romantic dinner and watching me tonight. You know, more power to you. But uh, I hope you all have a great Valentine's Day. I'm going to run um, Henry's books for you and his and that website. And of course, like he said, you can get these books at all the regular book outlets, including Amazon. So I'm going to go ahead and do that right now. And website is a very short history of life on Earth at blogspot.blogspot.com. And A Very Short History of Life on Earth is the first book. And The Accidental Species, Misunderstandings of the Human Evolution is the other book. And that one I can't read, so we're just going to have to go with it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm blind as a bat. But anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming today, and I will see you tomorrow at six, the usual time at 6.30 p.m. Have a good evening, and have a good day.